John chapter 15 as we continue in that series on the life of Christ. Let's just do this to get our brains working while the notes are being handed out. Which of these topics did Jesus talk the most about during his ministry? This is based on the number of verses that contain a reference to this topic or these words. Here are your topics to choose and they're listed. They, uh, I have a different order to put up between 1 and 10. Why don't you work on the top three? What do you think of those as the top three? Number of times Jesus mentioned one of these topics. Hell or prayer has been suggested. Faith. I mean, he talks about all of these a lot. Okay. Okay, nobody said the one yet. Okay, number one, it's going to be God the Father. Okay, that's mentioned. Two is heaven. Three is hell. Making disciples. Prayer and, come on machine, work with me. Okay, faith and belief is that's the number of times it shows up or verses. Love, coming of the Son of Man, the devil, and the Holy Spirit. What's interesting is the section that he's talking about, that we are talking about, that Last Supper section, he talks about all of these topics, and he mentions them quite frequently. Let's get into John chapter 15. Okay, we've been talking about that Last Supper experience. It's in the last week of Jesus Christ, and if you remember some of the information that we gave, or if you're just joining us, here's what's happening. Thursday night is our understanding of the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry. He has taken time to wash the disciples' feet. He has told them one of them is going to uh, betray that, him. He's told him he's going to leave. He's promising because they're all distraught. They're all upset because he's leaving. One's going to betray. He says, I'm going to give you the promise of paradise. He talks about power you'll have. He talks about prayer. He talks about the parakletos. That's the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's mentioned the idea of peace in John, towards the end of John chapter 14. In John chapter 15, he's continuing his discussion, but there's a change. They are leaving the upper room. They are now in those streets headed towards Gethsemane. And on the way, Jesus is going to start talking, John 15 verse 1, about the vine and the branches and continue a story. It makes sense. They're walking out the streets, the homes, all along there. They have a variety of different gardens. They have along the walls. They would have the vines. Even the temple was surrounded by this vine, a golden one that was mounted on the temple when Herod built his temple. And so they're walking along. And then that conversation that he has where he says in John chapter 15, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he says, shall that uh, bear not fruit shall be taken away and every branch that bears fruit he purges it and he goes on talks about it and he says in verse 5 I'm the vine you are the branches now there's a there's a lengthy discussion that he has let's remember that this is talking to believers he's talking to you believers he's not talking about the seed being planted he's talking about attachment abiding in Jesus Christ the main thought that shows up multiple times is this idea abide 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 it shows up 11 times in your English and also the same word shows up twice that you don't have in your English, it's translated for a number of us, continue or remain, but it's the same concept. And as he's going, he's going to make this whole idea about remaining very close to him. It's an analogy or a thought that he uses other analogies to impress upon us, the husband, the wife, the idea of um, the head, the body. And so he uses those analogies. This one is the vine and the branches. As he's talking, he makes that state, that comment about the abiding, okay? And so we have to remember that when he's going to talk in this passage, several times it's in the imperative. That means it's a command. Abide in me. Abide in me. It's not a suggestion. It's something that is absolutely necessary to bear fruit. We'll see in verses 4 and 5 if you look at them that unless you abide in me you cannot bear fruit. And yet at the same time the, ta- the passage says that we have been chosen to bear fruit. That's what God has, has saved us to do is to bear fruit for him. And so it's his decree. It's his desire that we bear the fruit. So this abiding is is what we do. We actively abide in Christ and then because of that we are passively able to have the fruit produced in our life. Now there's some activity but he is the source of our ability to, do, to bear the fruit. And so there's this thought all the way through. Now let's break it down a little bit. Okay? His comments are he is the vine, we are the branches. And if we break this down and understand a little bit about this concept, remember this is the seventh time in the Gospel of John that he uses an I am. And whenever we read those I am comments, where do we naturally go back, those of us who have any inclination of Old Testament? Where do you jump back to? Uh, Exodus, Moses, okay. At what occasion? 
the burning bush when he asks and meets for the first time, he's meeting Jehovah in a very personal way, and God says, I am, okay, who I am. Okay, and so it's that introduction. Now, they build upon it, that Yahweh concept has that, that Jehovah concept, uh, same words in different language. Um, they have this concept of I am the bread of life. We've, we can look at all these different passages. He mentions it again where he's talking about I am. So obviously there's another declaration that he's God. This is very, very, very important. Um, there's the idea that when he says I'm the vine, he is the source of the nourishment. I told you last year that we had this... Um, we had this tree, this branch. When we moved in, there was this ivy growing in one of the areas of our backyard. And it was kind of cool. Somebody told me it's called trumpet something or another because the flowers that came off of it. But I noticed after the period of this, as summer went along, all of a sudden it got offshoots all over the yard. And they would stick up and they were really prickly. And so I wanted to, because they were just really hard, coming up like a stick out of the grass. And so I wanted to get rid of this vine. It wasn't that, uh, wasn't that attached to me that we hadn't planted it, but I wanted to get rid of it. Um, and so we went for the root and destroyed the root of it. And then eventually what happens to everything else? Okay, they're going to die off, I hope. Okay, unless all those... those you know, those stems have, have root. If they have a root, they're going to continue. Well, he's saying, I am basically your root. I am your, your feeding to the, tula, uh, to the flower. I'm the one that's going to, to provide you the nourishment. You cut me off, there's no nourishment. So we're talking about him being the source of life. And he says, I am the true vine. Why does he say, I am the true vine? Because in the Old Testament, Israel is, uh, is called at times the vine of God. And so he's talking about the that idea that I am the one, I am following you. And, and so readers later on reading this, and they're going to they're find this out as he's talking. He says, I am your source. You don't have to run back to the Jewish system. That's going to play into the book of Hebrews. That's going to play into evangelism, that they, that they evangelize individuals. And some of the Jewish Christians will end up telling people, you have to tie back to Judaism, and you have to follow the customs. And Jesus making clear hey, I am, I am it. It's not a tradition. It's not a custom. I am the true vine. I'm the source of real nourishment for your spiritual life. And so he's talking and pointing out something that's very basic that you and I would understand if any of you have any gardening desires or inclinations, you would understand, okay, this is where the sap is coming from. This is what's going to produce any of the leaves on the trees in my yard. This is an important aspect. He then flips and says, okay, you believers, we are the, we are the branches. And so think with me, this is the weaker part of the, of the crop, the plant. This isn't the part that they typically would build from. This is going to be the part that basically produces uh, the fruit. It's going to be there. It's designed to be the part that produces the fruit. In and of itself, the branch has no life. That's where he's driving. In and of, without me, you can do how much? You can't do anything. Okay, he's making it very clear. You were designed to bear fruit, and he's going to define some of the fruit. You were designed to do it, but without me, you can't do it. You cannot have the joy. You cannot have that peace. I am it. So even though I'm gone, I'm very important to your life, or even though I'm leaving. That's why he keeps saying, you've got to abide in me. Okay, and again, he's leaving, he's taking off, and yet he's talking about that spiritual relationship abiding with him so you can produce the fruit. Then he makes the comment, he says, God is the father, God is the husbandman. You read that down in the text where you go on, he says, as he's making comment, my father is the farmer, verse 1, every branch in me that bears not fruit, he does what? As the farmer. If it's not bearing fruit, it's taken away. And he, he says, every branch that bears fruit, he does what to it? Okay, he leaves it alone. Is that what verse 2 says? This is an important concept for you and me. No, he purges it. What's that mean? Anybody have it? You've got to have a different translation, some of you. He prunes it. Okay. He prunes it that it may do what? Brings forth. Fr yeah. And, now, now, and you've heard this said many times. Okay. He talks about fruit. In verse 2, he talks at the end of verse 2, two about fr more fruit. And then in the middle or end of verse 5, he talks about much fruit. And so he's given this idea that he doesn't just want us to get saved and to get by. The whole idea is that he wants us to be actively producing fruit passively because he's doing the work, but producing fruit. And so God the Father takes a vested interest in the own care of the productivity of the vineyard, and he's seeking to get the most and the best fruit possible okay, from us. And so that involves some pruning. And if there is no 
if there is no fruit, if there's the dead branches, he's taking it away. He's removing it. Now that opens up a whole discussion out of this text. And we've talked about it in multiple times in different passages. And you've probably read about it. If you've come through any kind of a study that you've taught, gotten a Bible study or personal study through this text, you've, and you've, you've um, encountered some other commentary, some of that sort, you're going to get a wide variety of opinions. And there's basically three that say, okay, what are or who are the dead branches? And so the observations, the comments go basically this way. There's groups that would say the dead branches are believers who have lost their salvation. They were at one time, and they use the analogy, they're at one time attached to Christ, otherwise they wouldn't even be a branch. So they had to be attached to Jesus Christ, but they are no longer bearing fruit, so they are cut away, and they are thrown into a fire. And the conclusion of some is fire always represents hell. Okay, in Scripture, that's, the, that's, an, that's a conclusion uh, that some have drawn. And so they say, okay, there's a branch, used to be saved, used to be with Christ, not bearing, they lose their salvation, they're cast into hell. That is one uh, interpretation that is given by some uh, in talking about this passage. Others are going to say this. Others are going to say these, real, these aren't real believers. They're attached in the sense that they show up at church. They, they kind of look at like it from a distance, but really reality, they really aren't born again. And so they're false Christians, false professors, and they're people who never really were saved uh, at any time. They have no real life. And those individuals, there's going to be a pruning away. In fact, Matthew 7, depart from me, ye workers of a iniquity, I never... Yeah, and he says that to people who said, Lord, Lord, have not we done all these things in your name? And so the, the, some, uh, some will interpret and say what this is is people who were professors without possessors of Jesus Christ. There is another interpretation that's talked about. It, these were people who are backslidden. Christians who have uh, detached themselves from an intimacy with Jesus Christ. They are no longer fruit-bearing. We would call them the backslidden saved people, but saved yet so as by fire. And the fire just represents simply, not necessarily hell every time, but the idea of discipline. Uh, and you know, they'll point out that fire always isn't being cast in hell. In fact, the Christians who are judged at the Bema seat, your works are going to be tried by fire, okay, to see of what sort it is. And so it's just the idea of a judgment uh, of some sort. And so some will point out these different observations of what it is. I am going to absolutely positively say it cannot be number one. It can't be number one to be consistent with Scripture, Correct. Okay, you, don't, you can't lose your salvation. Even if somebody is backslidden, he's, they are saved yet so as by fire, by the skin of their teeth. And so the other two, there's, there's good folk that hold to either one or the other two. I have a personal opinion, but for now that really doesn't make any difference. Uh, who prunes the living branches to make them more productive? That's God the Father. Now the key is he wants more, pr- more fruit and he wants better fruit. Okay, and so he keeps on the pruning business. He keeps on working with it. And so when you go back into the ancient Near East and you get a little bit of study there, and some of you are more familiar with all this than I am as far as your own personal experiences dealing with plants. But there is, um, there, when you study a little bit of the culture, man, they, they, there, was, there was training done. You know, fathers would train. Even to this day, there's training done. They talk, I was reading some articles that they were saying that even in modern-day vineyards, you have to have a two-and-a-half-year to three-year apprenticeship before you're the one that's supposed to be doing the pruning. So there's a real art in it, not just which branches to prune, but even which way to do the slicing and the cutting. And again, that's, that's really far worse than Hebrew to me. Uh, I don't understand all that. I'm not familiar with all that. To me, any plant I get close to, it dies. Even the artificial plastic ones, they die. And so I don't understand all this other than read about it. Some of you are more familiar. This is a lot of work. There is some real interest and there's a specialized effort that's being taken that knows about the plant and obviously there's some hurt caused to the plant, but it's all done with the idea of, okay, we're trying to produce something that is bigger and better. And so we understand the pruning from scriptures when God does pruning. You've all been there. God often prunes us so that he can produce more fruit in our life through trials. James chapter 1. Count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing that the trying of your faith works nothing. Is that what he says? No, somebody quoted it. It works patience, and patience produces 
you know, maturity, and it goes on and on, talks about the different fruits. Um, Romans 5 gives us a whole variety of some of the fruits that God uses as he's pruning in our life. Or some of the pruning that can be is chastisement, correction, Hebrews chapter 12, where he talks about that. Or it can be the pruning of conviction, the cleansing. He even refers to it where he's talking about the branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he says he purges, and the idea of some will point out is that word that sometimes used for purging is even a cleansing activity. And so we have, we have that idea in Scripture that God uses a variety of tools. In according to Proverbs, he uses other people at times to sharpen us, to prune us, to get us to be able to, to produce more fruit. But the, the point of the text is we have to abide close to Christ. We have to stay really, really attached to him. And so as we are staying close, the issue that some of us have in this room is how do I abide in Christ? What exactly does that mean to mennow with Christ, to be really close to Christ, you know, to be really intimate with Jesus Christ, where he is flowing through me and there's going to be the productivity of fruit. How do I do that? The text gives us some ideas here. The text talks about in here about some of that aspect where he's talking about you are clean, verse 3, through the word. Okay, and so again, some will point out that the root word for clean and purging, they have some similarities. And so you are clean through the word that I have spoken unto you. So one of the aspects is that the word of God is the, one of the ways that God does the pruning. And I think all of us would say that's true. There have been times that we have sat and read the Bible or we have heard the Bible preach and it has brought conviction. It has pointed out areas of our life. It is like, what does James say? The word of God is like uh, something we use every day. It's like a mirror, and we get to see exactly the way we look, and the key is that we should not walk away and forget how we look, but we should remember, and we should look, and we should make some adjustments and some changes. There is something else in here, and that is that idea that he's talking about that cleansing of the word that I have spoken unto you, and some will point out, they'll say that there's a confession. Okay, we have to have that pruning to get some things out of our life is personal confession before the Lord. 9 and 10 in this passage, he is going to be referred to, he says, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue in my word. If you keep my commandments, you shall menno or abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And so the ob obvious is, okay, by working and produ producing, and I'll go back to where we were a couple weeks ago. There are two absolute um, opposing concepts in evangelical Christian churches like ours. There are some who would, who would go to an extreme and say, you've got to keep all these rules or you're not spiritual. That is legalism. That is wrong. There are others who say, I, I'm spiritual as long as I walk with Jesus and I don't have to keep any rules. I can do whatever I want as long as I'm in love with Jesus. That is license. Okay? Both of them are wrong. In the middle is there a reality that is the reality that says, okay, do I have to be walking with the Lord and close to Him? Yes. But also I have to have some active activity in my life that I am obeying. And so there's a blending of the two, walking, being in fellowship, and also having a, a desire to obey. In fact, if we don't have a desire to obey, John will write later on in Third John that if there's no desire to obey, the love of the Father is not in us. It's one of the signs out of the book of John that somebody's not born again. And so this aspect of, okay, I, I need to have an attentiveness to the Word of God, a desire to obey His Word, that's true. That produces more fruit in our lives and as we follow Him. So abiding with Christ is much more than just good intentions. It's much more than feeling something when we come to worship. And there's nothing wrong with feeling something when we come to worship, but it's got to be more than, okay, I was moved and then I go out and live like I always did. Okay, some of us were in churches that we did that already in the past. It was like, you know, live for God for that hour and a half in church and live like the devil the rest of the week. Okay, that, that we can't be doing as believers. If we're abiding in Christ, we're going to have an intimacy with him, but we're also going to have a desire to produce for him. The fruits is the question. What type of fruits would be obvious in our life? And by the way, um, this has a tie to the Sermon on the Mount when he is saying there's a good tree and there's a bad tree. Do you remember what he makes his analogy in that or his application? What do you know about the bad tree and the good tree? By their fruits you shall... Okay, whether they are following Christ or whether they are, you know, or whether they're true or whether they're a, a false believer. And that's in that same section where he says, you know, 
uh, depart from me, workers of iniquity. It's in that latter part of that Sermon on the Mount. And so the fruits are very important. They should be in our life. And what fruits are there? Well, some of this is, is repetitive of other things he's already said. He mentions, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done. So answered prayer is a fruit. You have in the text, from verse 8, herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So there's a desire to glorify God. Okay, and that's, that's an element of a fruitfulness in your life. And by the way, should there be, is this a growing desire in our lives to have more and more of a desire to glorify God? Absolutely. As we grow in Christ, this should be becoming more and more of a dominant thought, how do I glorify Christ? How do I glorify Christ? When we're first saved, it's new for most of us of glorifying Christ in church because all of a sudden church is a new thing. And the experience of church for some of us is so new. And then all of a sudden it starts going, oh, I glorify Christ in, the, in my speech away from church. And some of us had to change the dirty words and the jokes and the cussing and the cursing. And then it just kind of permeates your life as you go on and it keeps on going. I need to glorify Christ in relationships. I need to glorify Christ in my finances. I need to glorify Christ in the way that I respond to trials. And it's a growing and, and ongoing um, experience in our life that we're saying, okay, how do I glorify? And it just touches more and more areas. 9 and 10, we already read about loving the Father, keeping His commands. There's going to be a growing desire to do that. That idea of the ability to be able to obey more and more is one of the fruitfulness. He talks in verse 11 where he says, these things have I spoken unto you for what reason? That my joy might remain in you. Again, to have a peace even though I'm leaving, to be able to overcome your trials and to have a stability in your life. There is in verses 12 and 13. He repeats a command that he's given earlier in chapter 13 and again in 14, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man uh, show it by giving his life for another. There is the idea of discerning God's will down in verse 15. I call you not servants anymore, for the servants know not what the Lord does. And so he's alluding to that idea that we're going to have an understanding of the leading of the Lord. Then he gets into chapter, the end of chapter 15 and chapter 16, the idea of, okay, remaining loyal. And he even talks about, he says, I don't want you to stumble when you are facing such serious things as persecutions. All these are fruits. These are to be ongoing, growing, showing that, okay, we are abiding with Christ. Now, other passages talk about fruits and even mentions this concept in other New Testament texts. And you can find more, but these are a few. Romans 1 talks about the fruit of winning souls. We have the idea of the fruit of holiness mentioned in Romans chapter 6. We have the fruit of love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness. Um, and he goes on about temperance as well. So you have these different Christian virtues, Christian character. This is a fruit that should be growing and exceeding in our life and developing in our life. Uh, that, I, think, I think many of you have experienced this. As you grow in your Christian life, you may have related to people with a harshness and a shortness, a, a temper, and you know, you know, strike out at them. As you grow in Christ and you say, I want to glorify God, even when I'm, even when I'm getting really frustrated, well, there should be a growth of fruitfulness that says, okay, better self-control, better gentleness, better long-suffering with other people, improving, increasing. So it's not the yelling at the kids because they get in front of the screen because they're blocking the Vikings. Some of you would say that's a good thing. Okay, but, but there's, there's a... There's a greater gentleness. There's not the way you used to act when somebody cut you off and that's the yelling and the screaming. It's not like when somebody at the counter, and we all get frustrated when we get one of those clerks who can't figure out anything unless it's on that computer. Okay, and you're, you're in a hurry and that's when the person in front of you got something without the tag. And they have to call back, but there's nobody in that department. And you're in a real hurry and it's like you look down at all the other lines and you pick the shortest line. Okay? And you're getting frustrated and you're learning to... Okay. Character that says, okay, I need to be growing in gentleness and faith and meekness so I just leave the items there and walk out. No. Uh, whatever, whatever you choose. But that's what we're talking about is that growing characteristic of how you deal with difficulties in the home where it's like, hey, we're not the harsh words. It's growing graciousness even. And the language changes, the temper is supposed to be changing, the attitude, parenting. 
Man, there should be a change and a growth. As your kids grow, you should be growing. That it's not that screaming and yelling and, you know, a viciousness towards your kids. Okay, and they see that modeled. You have more fruit, much fruit, and you keep on growing in that area. The fruit of good works. We have the fruit of our lips. This is, Hebrews is talking about what we do this morning. Is when we gather together with the fruit of our lips, we are giving thanks always, and he talks about amongst the brethren singing unto the Lord. And so even in our growth, uh, as we go along, there's a growing aspect of our worship that says, okay, when I come to worship, um, it, it probably never happened to you guys. But goofy people like me, this happens too. When I first go to church as I was a baby Christian, I was enamored that number one, people sang. Because we came from a, a church that nobody sang but the choir sitting in the back of the church. And so that amazed me. And it amazed me everybody carried a Bible. Then after a period of time, after we got into the routine and used to it for a few years, I went through a phase where it was like, okay, now sometimes in church I got enamored with other people and watching what other people did or what they didn't do or how they acted. And there was the distraction of other people at times in worship. And there's a growth that, as over a period of time, the growing that says, wait a minute, Wayne, when you're here in church, it's really not about other people that should steer your focus. The focus in worship should be upon God. Okay, and his word, and okay, so somebody is, you know, is, is doing something goofy, okay? And I understand the distractions, that's what I mean, but, you know, we would get enamored at times about some things, the way, the, the way some people, and this is in my immaturity, even in my college years, and, you know, looking to see, you know, some people and how they didn't coordinate clothes, you know, and that was our topic, of conversation well, you know, between services. Is, hey, did you see what so-and-so wore? Or somebody, I remember there was one guy in our church, okay, and he had a terrible toupee. It was terrible. And in the summertime, we would sit behind him just to watch the toupee. You know, it would slide because there was no air conditioning in the building. And he would sleep, and they would slide back, and all of a sudden, it would slide forward. And we were entertained by this guy. And so we've all had experiences where it's like, okay, things happen and we get distracted. I'm preaching away and I can get distracted like the best of you, okay, when somebody creates a distraction. But after a while, you just come to a point to say, wait a minute, some of the things that we consider important, that's not supposed to be the focal point. We can worship in a different setting. We can worship in a, in a you know, some things, they're, they're not so critical. The critical, the critical mass of worship is worship. And and it's a growing process. And so even that fruit of our lips and that praising. And so uh, we all have those experiences that we're growing through and maturing. If we are abiding in Christ, we have that ongoing process. And even today, we should be ongoing and growing and growing and growing more and more so as to bear fruit, more fruit, and much fruit, okay, with that whole concept. So let's make some observations, okay? God wants fruit and plenty of it from his children, okay? Here's the problem for me. Now, some of you won't struggle with this, but me and a few others in the room, as long as we're bearing fruit, it's okay. I'm good enough. But the Word of God says God wants more fruit. And so there's that ongoing process. The only a living organism, this is critical, only a living organism can produce fruit. So we've got to be born again. We've got to have that relationship. God will work to improve and increase in this issue quality and quantity. Both aspects of the fruit that, that is in our life. If there is no increase, if everything has stayed the same this past year in your life, then something's wrong. If there's no maturing, if there's no increased fruit, some of those things we mentioned, if there's no improvement in that fruit, then something's wrong with you and me. And so we understand that God is constantly working. We have both the privilege and means of having bigger and better fruit in our lives via a walk with Jesus Christ. Not ourselves, but through Him. The exact quantity of fruit varies from person to person. We're going right back to the abilities given, the talents that are given, the coins that were entrusted, that there's a variation and God in His in his interview of those different servants, wasn't so concerned about how much did you increase to a certain level, but that you had increase. And so that varied between the five and the ten and the one, the three. The two different parables had different amounts. The fruit God is looking for is what he describes in the Bible. I think this is, this is for me, a challenge. Too often people are satisfied with the fruit of their choosing, 
Not necessarily what God chooses. We've given you some in scriptures. This is what God chooses. Others will throw it out and say, yeah, but, but I have, I've decided that the fruit I'm going to bear is such and such. Fine if it fits with scripture. What about these other, what about Christian virtues? What about actions? Oh, illustration. Somebody says, I've, I've produced the fruit of giving, and I increase my giving periodically. However, that same person has no increase in patience, graciousness, kindness towards kids and family at home. And there's been nothing changed. For days and days and days and weeks and weeks and weeks and years and years and years, this is the fruit God wants, not just this fruit that you choose. And so that challenge of saying, okay, how do I line up with the fruit that Scripture has? To improve the fruit God seeks, we must abide in Christ by being in His Word, being cautious about personal purity, the cleansing He mentioned, being sure we do what He wants us to do. Failure to produce does result in some form of... of um, I'll use chastisement, conviction, however you want to do it. But God's involvement in dealing with you so as to bring forth more fruit. And so you got the purging, the pruning. And so this is a really, really important topic to Jesus Christ, leaving it with the disciples. It's important to God. It's important to Christ. It should be important to us. Right from there, he teaches another aspect that is really interesting how this all fits together. Now, here's the, the text for me has been a challenge for years and years and years. I read this whole passage, and I think at times this is random thinking he's just kind of all over the place and that's not true. There is a flow to this. And so as we continue on he's talking about people who should love the Father, be close to the Father and he says, verse 5 uh, 15. Henceforth I call you not servants, for a servant knows not what the Lord is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father, I have made it known to you. You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, or ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, that your fruit should remain, and whatsoever you shall ask in my name, I, uh, that uh, of the Father in my name, he may give it. These things I command, that you love one another. So it's tied together with some fruitfulness. But understand, again, you are all got the setting. He's on his way, head of Gethsemane. As they're going, he's already mentioned a couple times, love one another, love one another, new commandment I give unto you earlier that evening. And so now he's going to revisit it on the road. And it can be for a couple different reasons. It can be if he's revisiting loving one another, it's obvious this is an important topic. You do it all the time. You revisit something that is important to you. It can be, okay, let's take the human aspect of this. As Jesus is walking and knows what's happening, can he, like some, like some of us here, when you are in certain circumstances that become more intense, even the circumstance of death, and he's looking at death, he's looking at separation, do we get a little bit more emotional with our relationships? Does that often happen? Okay, now you start appreciating, you know, the people around you. And there's more expressiveness in these types of moments. And so we, ha we have that exactly what does he say and goes back to some of, of this background of what he's talking. And he's talking about the new commandment, okay? This love, again, important to Christ, a must. And remember it said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples. He's leaving. He wants them to make sure that they understand there's got to be unity. Unity of mind, unity of spirit is so critical. Um, he again says, you have to love as I have loved. Okay? Again, he's the standard, not you and me or somebody else, but he's the standard that makes a big difference. And it can make a big difference, this compassion. I think, Alan, you were the one, maybe you weren't. Somebody was just mentioning, yeah, it was you. You were mentioning in Scott's church, they got an older, mature saint that came in from a different background, and it has permeated the church, this older saint, because of Yeah, and in that culture, there is a difference. Okay, uh, we're in Barcelona, Spain, is what we're talking about. There is, most everybody speaks Spanish. So therefore, everybody gets along. You think? In that realm of that world, is there forms of prejudice and distinction between different countries that speak Spanish? And it's true. And so you were saying that some of the people who immigrate in from you know, the different parts of Mexico or Puerto Rico or Cuba or whatever, and come into Spain, the typical Spanish response is they are not the purest, like we are the purest. See, this is so foreign, we Americans don't understand any of this prejudice for people who come from different ethnic backgrounds. We never struggle with this. But you were saying that this man who was a mature Spanish 
native from that area, he came in and started demonstrating acceptance of all different, of those different cultures, and it started permeating the church and made a huge difference by one believer starting to practice no prejudice, no, uh, you know, no ethnic, you know, distancing, and made a big difference in the church, huge difference in the church. That's what Christ is talking about, not only within but without. It really makes a difference about that compassion. And he points out in verse 13 about this compassion that we need to be willing, okay, as he's talking about it, that um, in, in verse 13, that no greater love has a man than this, that he laid down his life for his friends. Now, is that reference to Jesus? Uh, yeah, but is it also a challenge to you and us? We have to be willing to go this far. Okay, let, 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 me, let me take it back to where some of us are at. I love my wife. Okay? You love your wives. But we're supposed to love our wives as Christ loved the church. Okay, that's great. I love her dearly, whatever. Christ did what for the church? He gave himself for the church. I love my wife so much, but I just can't spare time to do the things she might want to do. Okay, I can't give, you know, I can't pull away from my interest one time a week to have any interest in her. Um, she is struggling. She is having difficulty due to taking care of the kids or the house. And, you know, I'm, I have busyness in my life, too. I can't take my time because I have a scheduled basketball game to go to. And she's just going to have to, you know, buck it up, grin and bear it, and get through it. And yet Christ says you're supposed to be willing to lay down your life. Put, put away some of the things that you and I consider precious to sacrifice for the, for the wife in that case. Well, that's what he's talking about in this text, referring right back. Listen, we've got to sacrifice for one another. Go out of our way. Oh, I love everybody at church, but I am so, so busy with everything that's going on in my life. There's no, there's no way I can make a meal for somebody in need. I, am so, I just love everybody at church, but to go and visit an elderly person, a widow which we are commanded to visit. For me to take the time, you just don't understand. I've got all this shopping that I need to do, and we've got, we're getting ready for vacation, and we've got gardening to do, and I want to get a new wardrobe. Not me, but uh, whoever. Okay, And so we've got all this busyness, but we can't take time to sacrifice for somebody who is desperately lonely. That's what he's talking about is you and I get out of the normal routine of life and actually put into practice sacrificing for other people. Giving up things in our schedule and our time that we normally consider so important, which time and money is important to us. And so he's talking about making an impact. And by the way, let me go back to that illustration. I have heard this said to me a few times when I've said, alluded to this before, is you don't understand, Pastor. We have kids, and they take a lot of time. Don't you think visiting a widow is a teaching moment for your kids? It's probably one of the greatest moments of teaching your kids and creates opportunity. And isn't this time together when you go? And so there's, you know, there's, the bottom line is we have time to do what we want to do, what we consider important. So he says, okay, make it important. Make it important to sacrifice, to really go out of your way for other people. And then from there, after he's talked about loving one another, and I, and I should have read all of this, uh, the previous verses before I read verse 15, that commandment of loving one another in verse 12, he says, okay, here's how much, here's the way I love you. Okay, and he's going to get into this. He's going to talk about their relationship. Now understand when he's going to play in verse 15 about that idea of friends and servants. Um, presidents did this. Presidents had their kitchen cabinets. We talk about those types of things all the way back to Andrew Jackson. Uh, Truman had one of his kitchen cabinets where it's close friends and advisors, though they weren't a, in an official capacity, they were close and they had this opportunity. Now some of the advisors at times could be in an official capacity and rulers had this. Now the king has, the ruler in an ancient world, he's the sovereign. He's totally in control. They don't have parliaments back in this era that Jesus is talking. That's, that's an abnormality 
personality of that point. And so the people, all of them are subject, including friends, relatives, family members are subject to the king. And yet there were some that the kings might bring close to them who were their closest advisors, their closest court friends, and those individuals would know the details. They might even ask them what they think. And yet they were subject to that ruler. That ruler could still pick and choose you know, obligations that they would have. And Jesus says, this is the way I, I am emperor ruler, but I want, I want you to be some of my closest confidants, my closest friends, that you're going to be a little bit more in the know, and you can, you can have you know, that close fellowship with me, but you're still my servant, in the sense that you are, you are still subject to me, but you're going to be elevated to a spot where we're going to be much, much closer. Verse 14, if you do what I tell you. If you are one that, that has that aspect of you're yielded to me, you're still my servant, you're obey, obeying me, and he says then you're going to have this closeness. That's what he refers to, and he goes on and talks about being close friends. And in that conversation, he makes it clear, you as a close friend are not your own. I have ordained you that you should bring forth fruit. You are not freelancing in your spiritual life just because we have an intimacy. Just like somebody in that ancient day, they are close to the king, they couldn't freelance their own in their own decisions to do whatever they wanted fully on their own. They still had some form of subjectivity to the ruler, the king. And so he makes it very, very clear. Now, I'm going to go back to what I mentioned before. Here's another one of those texts that says, I have ordained you that you bring forth fruit. He doesn't ordain us to salvation and salvation alone. What he does is he ordains us to be conformed to the image of Christ, to be ordained to bear fruit. And if you go through all these predestination passages, they deal with the idea that you and I have a purpose, a decree in the plan of God. It wasn't just to any, meeny, miny, more. I'm going to save him, him, her, and that rest, you know, God's chosen to hell. I don't believe that. But God has sees who's going to respond to the gospel and he says those who respond, they are predestinated to be conformed to my image, to bear fruit. They have a purpose in their life. And so he talks about it in this text and says that we're supposed to be able to bear fruit and he reminds us at the end of it, in order to do this big task, love one another or bring forth fruit, you ask, I'll give you the help. You ask, I'll be with you. And from there he goes right into the aspect of, of that loving one another and repeats it and summarizes it, brings it all together before he launches into another tied to topic. Us loving one another is major. We know that. He repeats it frequently. He commands it. He makes sure that we understand. We are required to do more than be nice to one another. That's an aspect of love. But we're required to actively sacrifice for one another. That's why, uh, let's, be real, let's be real practical about it. Is working a nursery to serve, is that a means of serving other people? Yes or no? Oh, absolutely. Is there sacrifice involved? Yeah, yeah, I'm not talking about, you know, having to change a dirty diaper, though that's sacrificial for some. But you're giving up some opportunity to worship. But does your, does your sacrifice of, of helping out others, does that spirit, does that relay in, in promoting other individuals in their walk with the Lord? Yeah. When do we stop sacrificing? Soon as my kids are no longer in the nursery. Then I'm off the hook. Oh, isn't it even a greater sacrifice for those who don't have kids in the nursery to go in and work? Yes, no? Okay. There's that aspect, and, and we, we say, well, wait a minute, you know, I don't have to. I don't have to. I know you don't have to, but we should want to sacrifice for one another and serve and not look at, that, look at it as a, as a difficulty, but it really is a ministry. It is a way of ministering to people. Okay, we're required to do more than be, just be nice. It's obviously not as easy or natural to consistently do these things. It just doesn't flow. You know, somebody asked me this this week. It was a really interesting question. They said, I find myself so often when somebody says something to me and it irritates me, I just want to just tell them off. I said, you know, what's wrong with me? I can't tell them a thing that's wrong with them. Because don't you feel the same way? When somebody says a dumb thing to you or a harsh thing to you, what does your inside initially say? Jerk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, 
maybe I'm the only one in this room with that person that has so many things come through my mind that I could say. Okay. I mean, do we all have things and thoughts that, you know, this is my bad, this is the way I could react, and it's a bad reaction. The key isn't what runs through our mind initially. The key is what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Do we, and, and sometimes people do say the things that are harsh in return. Or some people will hang on to it and replay it and run it in their mind and it becomes such a part of their, their makeup that by, they're changing their nature to become harsh with other folk. So it's not necessarily what happens with that initial temptation. I mean, we all struggle with that. But it's, and, and we all struggle at times of not wanting to be gracious and sacrificial and protect our own time and our own, and our own stuff. But it's a matter of what do we do with it. And we, it's, this takes work. This loving one another takes real effort. Our standard of love is Christ. Right, let me, and let me go back to the illustration that Alan had brought to my attention. I think it probably took uh, that, gen, that elderly gentleman effort in his life to learn to go around and talk to other peoples in his own culture. I bet you, I bet you he had to work at that even in the church service to get out of his pew and to walk across to go to somewhere else in the auditorium and talk to somebody who was Puerto Rican or Cuban. I bet you it wasn't natural for him because in his culture it would have grown up and said you don't do that. So in that same way, that working to say, okay, I want to do this and Christ is my standard, I've got to give it some real effort. Christ wants us to have special relationship with him. Uh, although he is our Lord, he offers us the intimate walk and talk. This is amazing that this this emperor, this ruler would do that. He has set a criteria for this type of closeness. It starts with being willing to obey him and doing what he wants. He even provides all the help and the encouragement we need to fulfill this goal of loving one another and doing what he wants. It's that prayer aspect. And it's amazing. He tells us what to do, gives us everything he wants to do, gives us the power to do it, and you know, makes, it, makes it success in the areas of love and compassion and growth, makes it really, really viable and possible. That's an amazing God that we serve. So he goes on right behind that, okay? And he, start, he goes from, this doesn't make sense. Love one another, love one another, love one another. Oh, by the way, you're going to get beat up. Can you see a tie? Can't you see how this ties together? He's talking about love, 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 love one another. The world will know that you, lo- that you love one another. But at the same time, guys, don't be caught off guard that you will not be loved by the world. Okay? Because this is the way I operate. Maybe you too. I expect people to treat me the way that I treat them. That's what I want. Does it work that way? No. No, and he's telling them it's not going to work that way. You're going to love these people. And haven't you done this? Haven't you loved somebody trying to bring them to Christ? You have loved them and loved them and loved them, and they have turned out to bite you, to attack you because of your faith? You were motivated by compassion to help them out. We, we in our home church back in Minnesota, there was a family that, that suffered um, some tragedies, floods, fire, something like that. The church went way out of its way to try to reach out to this family that was in desperation and gave them all kinds of things, went over and helped with their house and, and gutting some of the stuff. And guess what the family did afterwards? Man, they ripped that church apart. They attacked that church of not being loving and helpful because they didn't do everything they wanted. Okay, it was one of those things where they got involved, they were helping, and this family wanted, you know, with, they had damage, they had minor insurance, if at all, and they, when they were, well, the church was helping to purchase the replacement of the kitchen, she wanted A1 kitchen. The church was willing to pay for B1 kitchen, okay, you know, A2, you know, just a notch lower. They were offended that they didn't get exactly what they wanted. Uh, by the way, grow up, okay, that's not the real world, but then they lashed out and they lashed back because, you know, quite frankly, it was spoiled little kids, okay, didn't get what I wanted, therefore attack, and so he's going to talk about these guys, he says, you're going to have that experience, you're going to love people, but they're not going to love you back, and so there is this, there's a real tie here in this text about how do you respond to the people who don't love you, 
You're supposed to love one another and it's supposed to be mutual. What about the people that you try to love and they don't love you? And he goes on and he talks. This, read the passage. He talks about hate, 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 hate. That there's going to be a hatred from the world. Verse 18, the world will hate you, you know that it hated me. By the way, the if is since. Since the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. And if you were of the world, the world would love you. But because you're not of the world, and I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world will hate you. Remember the word that I have said, that the servant is not greater than his Lord. If, you have persecute, if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they have kept if my sayings, they would keep yours. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them, they wouldn't know the sin. But now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hates me hates my father. If I had not done among them the works which none other man could do, they would not have seen their sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and the father. But this comes to pass that the word of God might be fulfilled. For when the comforter is come, which I will send you from the father, even the spirit of truth which proceeds, he shall tell testify of me, you shall bear witness, etc., etc. Oh man, this all ties together. This is not random thoughts. He's making it very clear. And, and the key that, I, to me, the key that I kind of overlooked is he is saying, it's not that they hate me and me alone. I am going to be gone. They're going to hate you. They're going to attack you. Again, prior to this point, all the directive, all the venom has been towards Jesus Christ. He has taken the brunt of all the attacks, all the accusations. Oh, sure. Did the disciples get into conversations like, uh, you know, with the, when Jesus was on the mount and when they came back down, did they have a little bit of argument with people? Yeah, but if you look at them, it was usually, why does your master? Why does your master? Why does, and it was that type of argument. This time, Jesus is gone. He's no longer the brunt. They get it in the chops. They get it in the teeth themselves. And he's going to say, they are going to be coming after you. In fact, if you take and jump down and just get the whole scenario, they're going to put you out of the synagogues, verse 2 of chapter 16, and the time that, that they will kill you, thinking that they are doing God a service. The word service is a spiritual religious activity. And so they're talking, he's saying that there's going to be religious zealots that are going to come after you. They're going to, they're going to try to kill you, and he's doing it out of service for God. So his comments, let's bring them all together, is this. Persecution is a sure thing. It's going to happen. You are not going to be accepted. It's, they're, going to, they're going to react against you if you are living for me. If you are bearing fruit, there's going to be some animosity, some reaction against you. Seven times he mentions the word. It's going to be serious. In fact, look at the wordings that we put up here. He starts off, you're going to be hated. Then he says, it removes just like fruit, more fruit, much fruit progression, hatred, persecution, excommunication, and death. It's going to intensify. As you have interaction, don't be surprised by a negative response to your Christianity as people uh, are around you. He told them that in spite of all this, look at chapter 16, verse 1, despite all of this negativity that's going to come against you, he says, do not be offended. Do not stumble. We're going to pick up from there next week. I didn't realize what time it was. Sorry about that.